If you think about an IT system, you can get mission critical failures. If we think about biosecurity, we could get life critical failures. So our belief is that this market will eventually grow up to be as big as the cybersecurity market globally. Welcome to this episode of Australian Pork's podcast, Next on the Menu. Our podcast is a curation of conversations on the future of food, and we'll be exploring our guests' perspectives on the innovations that will challenge the food world as we know it. I'm Andrew Billy Baxter, Chair of Australian Pork, and joining me today, as usual, is our co-host and longtime advocate of the pork industry, Mitch Edwards. Welcome, Mitch. Thanks, Billy. This is going to be an exciting podcast today. I can tell you that one. It certainly is. In this episode, it's my pleasure to introduce one of Australia's most influential technology entrepreneurs, Adrian Turner. Now, Adrian spent 18 years in Silicon Valley. He built some incredible businesses over there before returning to Australia in 2015. Most recently, uh, amongst many things, Adrian's been appointed Deputy Chair of um, Prezi, which is a uh, payments company, and they're talking about that being a potential unicorn, so uh, that's interesting. Uh, He's also leading the Mindaroo Foundation's Fire and Flood Resistance Initiative, and it's a program changing the way we'll deal with systematic fire and flood risk and helping to shift our national focus from response and recovery to disaster preparedness and resilience. And I would love to get into that shortly. Prior to this, Adrian was the founding CEO at CSIRO's Data61, the team that led the development of the National AI Roadmap, the Standards Advisory Work for Consumer Data Rights and Open Banking, and also the ICT stream for the National Genomics Mission. So he's also the founding co-chair of OSCyber, the national program to create a new and vibrant cybersecurity industry in Australia, and he's the author of an e-book. He's done everything, Mitch, uh, Blue Sky Mining, and he's regarded as a thought leader on Australia's industries of the future. Now, one of the things on top of all of that that we want to talk to him about today He's also co-founded a business called ExoFlare, and ExoFlare, as many of our producers may know, has been collaborating pretty deeply with Australian Pork. It's a data-driven biosecurity risk management system for pork farms, and it's something that we're going to have a great chat with Adrian about later today. Adrian, a pretty impressive CV. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Now, you know, with all of that, I think a lot of it comes back to problem solving. You know, you've obviously always been fairly creative in that space. And where did your passion for innovation and business come from? Uh, it started at a really early age. Both my parents and my family, more broadly, is very entrepreneurial. And growing up, I had a strong creative streak and could have wound up pursuing that path, as well as being strong in things like mathematics and science. So really bringing those two together is where I've spent a lot of my career. And I'm a a systems thinker. So as we get deeper into this, a lot of the problems that I've focused my attention on are systems problems. Right. Well, um, I'm going to ask you some questions now, but I need you to, um, with your broad knowledge, I need you to sort of tone it all down because you're dealing with a person here who has had to go on the block to try and get a a foot up in life. So I want to talk to you about (laughs) biosecurity, which has been such a major topic with our sector for quite some time, and you're really apt in this area and working with APL on a specific project. Can you give us a bit of an overview of XFLARE and what it is and where we currently are with it? Yeah, thanks, Mitch. So (laughs) if we roll back 20 years and we started connecting things to networks. This whole industry grew up around cybersecurity to protect those network systems. 
And today, the cybersecurity market is a $200 billion market. In my last role at Data61, the minister at the time for health, Minister Hunt, asked me to lead a national genomics mission, the ICT stream for a national genomics mission. And as we did that, it became clear that the ag and food sector is not dissimilar in that it's going to face new kinds of biological risk, bio threats. Mm-hmm. And that led to us starting ExoFlare working very closely with APL and building a new type of technology that will make it easy for producers to assess, identify, and respond to biosecurity risks. Just with that, and obviously that initial conversation back then with Minister Hunt would have been uh, interesting as well, but you're now into that project. How do you see it evolving? Because, I mean, it's clearly going to have a use case beyond just our pork industry that you're working with at the moment? It will. This is a market that substantially doesn't exist today. The ag and food sector needs to be able to identify and respond to bio threats and ideally get ahead of them so that production isn't disrupted. And technology is advanced in a way where the technology can be used to help with that and to automate aspects of that. And ultimately, we think that this can be a new global industry created from Australia, and that's our ambition. Our ambition is to solve for Australia across the entire ag and food sector, starting with the protein markets, but moving across grains and other sectors as well, and do it in a way that doesn't create additional cost or burden for producers, but raises their biosecurity posture and really supports their business and the continuity of their business in the face of rising biosecurity threats. So for me, Adrian, can you put it into simple terms? Basically, what is it? How does the tech work? And where does it start and finish? Yeah, absolutely. So When you're looking at any type of risk, there's contributors to that risk. And in the case of biosecurity, a contributor could be people moving between properties. They can carry disease and be a disease spread vector. So what the initial solution does is it allows producers to basically assess in about 30 seconds, the biosecurity risk that a visitor to a property represents and provides a very simple mechanism for the host, the producer, to provide access or deny access onto the property based on a small amount of information provided by that visitor. And then in the background, there's some smarts going on in terms of machine learning and analytics to really understand the types of risks that could be posed. And it could be a function of whether that individual has interacted with pigs, for example, on other properties. It could be, for example, whether someone in the household has been ill. But there are a series of factors that, together with APL and the industry and researchers, 
we've narrowed down to being important to identify early and get ahead of. So the experience is as someone visiting the farm, they'll get a series of questions that they need to respond to. And again, this only takes about 30 seconds. And if there's additional information that they need to provide, that's stored in the system as well. So it's a streamlined process. And then for the producer, all of that information is stored and accessible for internal organization reporting. And even if they needed to make it available at their discretion in the event of an incursion. So Mitch, a way way of thinking about this is it's a sophisticated COVID-like contact tracing application for people moving between properties that means if there's an incursion, we won't need to shut down the country. We, yeah. we can effectively zone. And uh, that's our, our primary objective here is to keep the industry running in the event of an incursion. Because you're right. We, we don't want to have what's happening in COVID where a whole state shuts down. We want to be able to just yeah. look at here's a number of farms that have been affected only, yeah. create a radius around those as a, as a safe zone and allow the rest of the industry to continue to operate effectively. That's exactly right. And it's not just people movement, it's uh, transportation and animal movement as well. We've identified about a dozen of these different risk vectors and are building solutions to address each. It's interesting that we tend to throw a lot of resource when something at a problem. When there's a crisis, we'll respond after the fact. And it doesn't matter if it's a health crisis or it's another sort of crisis. We're not very good at investing ahead of time to prevent that crisis in the first place. So whilst I've spoken about the system and in the background, we're applying machine learning or artificial intelligence to help make better risk assessments, a big part of this is behavioral as well. And that was one of the big learnings is we need to apply behavioral science to understand how we make this so easy to use, present the information through a mobile application or a desktop application, but make it so intuitive and easy to use that my parents could use it with their eyes closed. And so what we've learned is we've had the software on farm. We started with three sites Then we went to 18 sites and then to 50 sites. And we're tooling up now for uh, industry rollout, complete industry rollout in January. And uh, we've learned a lot about the usability to make sure that it's simple. And the feedback has been extraordinarily positive. Unsolicited feedback from producers saying how easy it is to use and the value that they're uh, seeing in the system and the data that's been collected we tend to be more reactive than proactive. You know, where are there more opportunities for APL that they could lead in? We think ExoFlare can play a key role in being proactive. The way we describe it is to lift resilience to bio threats. And resilience is a function of being able to absorb an incident, but being able to bounce back and bounce back stronger. And we think the way to do that is to have a very you know simple but always on it's almost like a you know a 
biosecurity helper sitting on your shoulder all day, every day, passively looking and providing suggestions. And it's not one thing, it's going to be 10 things in a day that in of themselves aren't big events or changes in behavior, but in aggregate, actually radically and massively lift the biosecurity posture of a producer. You've spent nearly 20 years in Silicon Valley. You keep a close eye on everything around the world. Is there anything like what you're doing out there? Is there anything similar globally in the ag sector or the food sector? No, there's not. There's digital agriculture software, which is focused on lifting productivity and output in the same way that companies today have productivity applications like we think about Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel to lift productivity. But this is a very specialized area. How do you assess biosecurity risk? And the profile of this team has deep experience in things like large-scale financial transaction analysis, cybersecurity, as well as agriculture and in the food sector as well. And we're bringing together a multidisciplinary team that we're being told is unique. We've got people in the US that are connected into the top tier deal flow for emerging companies. And they're telling us as well, what we're doing is unique in a global context. Just on that too, that the the ability, as we talked about earlier, for this to be more broad than the industry. And I know there's there's a lot being said, particularly from our minister, our ag minister, Minister Little Proud about you know, we've got some brilliant ideas in ag tech and ag innovation in this country, and we aren't often best at commercializing those. Or what do you think that sort of opportunity is with with what you're doing here? The opportunity is huge. We've got a target for $100 billion of ag exports. And the only way we get there is, we think, ensuring business continuity by raising our posture against bio threats And if we do it well, it actually becomes part of Brand Australia, that we've got processes and ways of operating that can give confidence to the buyers of our ag and food products that we're the best in the world. So in the same way, when one of the businesses that I'd built in the US went on at the time to be the global leader in cybersecurity for securing connected equipment. And that was everything from satellites to cars to phones. And at the time, that market was a $3 billion market. And we would approach companies and they would scratch their head and go, what are you talking about that there's going to be this need for cybersecurity protection? And few people believed that it would be a thing. And what we did over time was demonstrate that it the threat was real, but also demonstrate that if proactive steps were taken, it didn't need to get in the way of business and doing business. And that's what we think is going to happen here as well. Because we're not just, if you think about an IT system, you can get mission critical failures. If we think about biosecurity, we could get life critical failures. 
So our belief is that this market will eventually grow up to be as big as the cybersecurity market globally. If you look at COVID, now COVID is estimated to have cost the world so far $10 trillion, $10 trillion. And I saw an interesting stat that was pulled together in June that if you look at the weight of the COVID virus that at that time had caused all of the death and destruction around the world, it would weigh about 10 kilograms. So it's wow. like kryptonite, 10 kilograms of this virus and you know, pathogen has brought the world to its knees. So it's not a stretch to think that we will have evolving disease. I mean, there's an estimate that 1.7 million viruses around the world are unknown. You know, we haven't been able to properly identify them. Constantly evolving and mutating, it's not a stretch at all to think that we need a new kind of global infrastructure to protect against bio threats. I think what you were saying there, Adrian, is on the global tech stage, were you suggesting that Australia is considered to be a leader in some areas of the ag tech areas? We have a very well-respected ag and food sector. We're slower in the uptake of technology versus some other countries because we have good conditions and we have more land to work with. So other countries have been forced to adopt technology to drive higher yields and higher outcomes ahead of Australia. But we're very well respected. And from a biosecurity perspective, we're one of the best, if not the best, in terms of global reputation. And part of that is we're either the smallest continent or the largest island in the world, and we have that going for us. But We've also done a very good job historically of keeping disease out. I mean, if we look at, you know, African swine fever as an example, it's made its way to East Timor, but it hasn't made its way to Australia. Mm. Just pardon the pun, but what's the low-hanging fruit in the ag tech space that you've – is there some things overseas that you've seen that – and I know we've been slightly slower on the uptake. Is there anything else that you've seen you go, wow, this should really be being brought in here to Australia? The thing that we have to think about is we've got vertical integration and we've got the corporatization in sectors of the ag and food industry. And we've also got the application of platforms. And I'll give you an example with Monsanto. So, you know, Monsanto started out selling seeds, genetically modified seeds. But what they've evolved to is also licensing a platform for uh, maximizing yield and crop outputs, but they combined it with publicly available data from government, including soil data as well as weather-related data. They tied into or tie into the futures market so they can determine the relative price of a crop, plus or minus, at the end of the season. And they've elevated to be a financial partner to the ag sector. And basically the proposition is use our seeds, use our methodology, use our platform, buy our insurance. They also bought Climate Corp, an insurance company, and we'll guarantee you a financial outcome at the end of the season, plus or minus. Now, that changes the whole basis of competition. So that's not just a technology innovation, that's a business model innovation as well. 
And that's a scale business. The more properties that back into that Monsanto platform, the cleverer and more insightful the platform and the algorithms are to drive better recommendations about what crops to plant and when and how to how to take care of them to maximize the yield. So that's an interesting development. And the other interesting development is earth observation. And uh, perhaps we can talk about that later on in the context of disasters as well. But mm-hmm. we're going through this massive innovation right now, this, this step change in our ability to look back at earth from space. And to give you an example, we've got things called geostationary satellites. And Australia doesn't have its own. It actually borrows space time on that satellite from Japan. And that can give you a 10 kilometer square resolution from space. Then we've got new satellites that Elon Musk and Starlink are putting up called low earth orbit satellites that are creating a new communications network and they'll put up tens of thousands. And what that's going to result in is actually they estimate this calendar year full broadband coverage for every square meter on the planet from space, a new type of broadband communications network. So think of it as like an NBN in the sky. Now, what's going to happen next is those satellites are so small and inexpensive to put up that they're going to be turned back into the atmosphere and burned up every two or three years. The whole fleet will be refreshed. It'll be like a cell phone upgrade. And the next step will be to put sensors on those to be able to do earth observation at a high resolution. And already you can get down to three square meter resolution from low earth orbit satellites and stratospheric earth observation, which is closer to the earth than those low earth orbit satellites. So that's like Google loon, stratospheric balloons. You can get down to centimeter resolution from space. And in those sensors, you can do things like detect moisture content in a landscape. You can detect crop type. There's a lot of information that we can gather. And you can even, for example, you'll be able to detect feral pigs and other kinds of animals. You'll be able to count heads from space, which is extraordinary. And it's closer than we think. This is not decades away. This is years at most. It's amazing the like the steps forward that are being made. I, I find that there's sometimes a disconnect between a producer and these advancements. And I think that the, what you're talking about now, it's kind of filling in the gaps to why it benefits uh, me on my farm, um, trying to manage and be best commercially positioned for my pigs. I agree. I agree with you, Mitch. And oftentimes too, technologists will get enamored with the technology and lose sight of how the uh, technology will get used on the ground. And oftentimes these innovations fail because they're either too hard to use, they're too expensive, or the payback isn't there. I mean, it's got to be pretty simple math. If I spend a dollar on this technology, it's got to give me two, three, four, five, ten dollars back. Otherwise, why would I? Yeah, which is, I think, was where we have a gap. 
don't you think, Bill, that is hard to get that information across to the commercial benefit? Yeah, it's joining the dots, which I think, you know, Adrian did really well there. It's just to say, well, this is incredible technology and here's the benefit yeah. for us, So, uh, which is great. Now, I want to talk about the environment because a lot of these advances are also uh, around our environmental footprint and today's consumers, particularly our newer consumers coming through, our, our, uh, our Gen Zs, and who would have thought millennials are already 40, <laughs> but uh, but they are demanding that more environmentally friendly, climate friendly um, from a product output. Now, we've done really well in the pork industry the last um, 10 years. I think we've reduced our carbon footprint by 60% and our water use by 80%, but there's always room for improvement. What innovation are you seeing in this space, Adrian? The biggest innovation, I think, and the most exciting one is following on from what I was mentioning with Earth observation. There's an emerging push to treat nature and the environment as an investable asset class in its own right. And the only way that's going to happen, so, so I'll give you an example. Today, we rely on pollination. Pollination is a natural ecosystem process and we all benefit from it, but we're actually not always, not this is a generalization, but a lot of us are not always conscious of the importance of the climate and the health of the climate and biodiversity, biodiverse environments to be able to create the conditions for pollination. And I know we were doing a lot of this work at Data61 where we're actually, we put RFID tags on the back of bees. It was mm-hmm. like our bees with backpacks project where wow. we would look at the bees and how they're moving in and out of hives and how productive they are and how disease affected them. But that's an example of an ecosystem service. Water, water management is another example of that. And what we think is going to happen is just in the same way we have accounting standards for companies, we will have accounting standards to account for nature and those natural systems. And the world is paying attention and wanting to invest back into the environment and also sustainable practices, but we don't have consistent ways of measuring and even sharing costs, because it may if we take a water system, for example, if I do something upstream that demonstrate that, that provides benefit to other producers downstream in that river system, there's no way to measure that or for me to be compensated for that. And you know, an example would be if I clear fuel load away from a riverbank, that means if there's a fire, there's less likely to be debris that falls into the water and potentially pollutes a waterway, I've delivered benefit to everybody else in that system. How do we measure that and how do I get compensated in some way for that? So we think there'll be a whole economy grow up and there are organizations around the world standing up big multi-billion dollar funds right now. Now, The area that's really interesting is how do you measure it? How do you measure it? What are the standards? How do you automate all of that to be able to provide the benefit back to producers that are doing the right thing? What will happen then, I think, is that transparency will drive all the way through the value chain so that buyers will understand the practices of producers that delivered the product to their plate. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Just you mentioned fires, and I know one of your other big projects that you're working on is with Twiggy Forest and Mindaroo around bushfire resilience in particular. And I know you've met with some incredible people and experts in that space, not just here in Australia, but around the world. And you know, here we've got some incredible knowledge from our indigenous you know, fire management experts. And so we've talked a lot today about looking forward for what's coming, but sometimes we forget to look backwards to understand some incredible techniques and land management that almost uh, haven't quite been passed through. It'll be great to hear your experience in, in discussing land management with, uh, with our Indigenous uh, experts. I mean, first of all, disaster resilience to fire and flood is exactly the same class of problem as biosecurity resilience. It's a system problem. No one entity can solve it. It requires an industry or stakeholders coming together and agreeing how to solve it, how to measure it, who's responsible for what, you know, who pays for what in that whole system. So it's a system problem. And I actually think the most interesting problems the world's facing right now, they're all system problems. And we're reorganizing from an industrial era where every company or organization or even individuals cared a lot about their own work and output and paid less attention to the consequence of what they did on a system. And that's the shift we're going through, I think, as a planet and as a species, humanity. So looking back, there's enormous knowledge and wisdom in how to manage land. And it's both water management and storing water in landscapes. And it's also for things like fuel load management and coal burns. Where it gets super interesting is if you combine the cutting edge technology like earth observation, and we're now about to pilot a system in New South Wales that's been deployed in California last season, we'll be able to get down to a single tree resolution from space and using AI and machine learning know the type of vegetation, the height of the tree, the density of the canopy, the likelihood that that's a combustible tree and different terrains and and vegetation type cause different fire characteristics, the rate of spread and things like that. So you combine that with indigenous knowledge to then you've got a one plus one equals five. And we just did a pilot in the Hunter Valley with the Wanarua Nation where 22 tonnes of fuel load was removed using Indigenous practices. What's happening next is there's a group called Fire Sticks Alliance, and they're going to create a national program and map that coordinates all of those Indigenous land management activities, coordinates the way that they happen, when they happen, with knowledge sharing between them across country. And we think that that can actually result in new industry for applying the knowledge that can be also fairly compensated. What are the major things that you see coming that will disrupt the food ag industry, for better or for worse, but also beyond that, coming from a pork producer's perspective, how would they take that on to have the confidence to embrace innovation or technologies and make incremental change? So I think one of the 
changes you, you, coming you down the a, line. You, you paused for a minute there, Adrian. Did I actually just ask a question that was really quite um, intellectually advanced? <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! Get me! Um, no, probably not. No, you did. No, it's a great <laughs> question. It's a great question. It's a deep question. It's uh, Okay, so technology by itself is neither helpful or unhelpful to the industry. It's the way it's applied. It's the way it's designed and the way it's applied. And there are some important innovations coming down the line that are not just important themselves, but there's a compound. They feed on each other. They build on each other. So if we take the example of sensing, cheap, inexpensive sensors, things like a Ceres tag that can be attached to an animal so that we can track that animal. So cheap sensing is one, or we're sensing water levels and water quality. The second one is pervasive connectivity. Some of our regional areas still struggle with good network connectivity. That will get solved, whether it's Starlink or whether it's a Starlink-like service. Mm -hmm. Cheap connectivity, always-on connectivity will be pervasive throughout the country. The other that's happening is, as a result of those two, we're getting better at instrumenting physical environments and farms. What that's going to do is to, as long as the technology is easy to use and affordable and has a clear payback, it's going to drive better insights around operational efficiency, health and safety and compliance, biosecurity risk, yields. It's going to make a big difference in terms of the profitability and the scale of output that we get from our ag and food sector. And the equation there has to be that the investment in the innovation and the technology has to be less than the profitability gain. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense economically. The other big shift I think is going to happen is particularly in biosecurity, up until this point, government's been the one that's carried the bag together with industry, but they've underwritten the response and recovery process. And they also invest heavily to keep disease out of the country. It's not dissimilar to the early days of cybersecurity where government played a big role before an industry grew up. And when I talk with people in government, decision makers in government, they want industry to take the lead in lifting the biosecurity posture and they actually want to move that boundary between government and industry. But it has to be done in a way that doesn't create burden on the producers so that our industry becomes less profitable or it's it's harder to be compliant with the obligations from government. So that all will reshape, we think, in the next five years, uh, that boundary between industry and government. One last question before we let you go. We, we sort of ask everyone, I mean, who are your mentors and who do you look for for inspiration? Because I think a lot of people would look to you, but who are your mentors and what's your inspiration out there? I'm insatiably curious Everyone I meet, I go in with an open mind. So the first thing is, you know, I hope there's a humility and open-mindedness 
in the way that I move through the world. Like I consciously, I, I learn from I learn from my daughter teaches me every day <laughs> things. Uh, the the person I think who is most interesting right now is actually I think there's two, and they're very similar in type. So one is uh, Elon Musk, and Elon Musk is a guy. I actually had the pleasure of meeting him. He had just got off his plane to save Tesla with a $50 million investment from Daimler. They were days away from going bankrupt. And he got up on stage and didn't talk about that, but talked about the first Falcon 9 successful launch of, uh, of the rocket, the first private rocket that went into space. And the rockets before had blown up on the launch pad. If this one didn't work, SpaceX was dead. Tesla was almost dead. So he was a guy, and I, and I read afterwards that he was going through a messy uh, divorce around about that time as well. He was a guy who just the scale of the ambition and, and fearlessness to look at the world differently and the conviction in his own ideas, Tesla just hit a trillion-dollar market capitalization in the last days. And SpaceX has raised money in the last month at a $100 billion valuation. You've got a guy that was in that place in 2000, I think it was 2012, you know, who's now generated $240-odd billion of net worth personally. And it's not about the money because he's actually sold his material possessions and said, actually, there's really big, important problems. We've got to electrify the car industry and we've got to back up the human race to Mars in case something goes sideways here on Earth. But the car companies can't compete. They're on a different rate of development in the cars and they've changed the cost models through the application of technology. And SpaceX is the same with their reusable rockets. They've completely changed the economics of putting a payload in space. So I think the lesson there is that we have to embrace innovation because it creates new markets, but it also changes the economics. And if we don't move forward with it, then others will and we'll, we'll get left behind. And the second one, and you'll probably say I need to say this because he pays me, but it's more than that, is Andrew Forrest. I think Andrew Forrest is Australia, you know, is the closest that Australia has to an Elon Musk in that you've got someone who's built a $40 billion company from nothing, who's putting it all on the line to create a new hydrogen industry for Australia. And he's out in front. You see him, he's over at COP26 right now, but he visited 50 countries during lockdown to go and talk to others in the world about how to create a hydrogen industry that doesn't exist today, where the only byproduct of producing that hydrogen is water. Hmm. Adrian, um, that's all pretty amazing. And I really appreciate you joining Billy and I today. And thank you so much. And the one big outtake for me is I need to aim higher. You're influenced by Andrew Forrest and um, Elon Musk, while I'm taking my influence at the moment from my personal trainer and the barista at my local cafe so i need to i need to get out there and be bigger and bolder but but thank you so much i think that was pretty amazing uh, as you'll agree billy but for now there you have it another episode of next on their menu and i'd like to thank adrian turner for joining us as well as of course my co-host billy baxter and our producers 
Boyd Britton and Ashley Gray, and of course, our researcher, Andrea Zanatta. This podcast can be found on all good podcast networks such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also find Next on the Menu across all Australian pork social channels or at australianpork.com.au. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review as well or any feedback. I'm Mitch Edwards. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Next on the Menu.